most wonderful show is Keeping up with the Joneses. AJ Jones. Hey, baby. You look very sun-kissed. I am. I had way too much sun for Scotsman. Yeah, I mean, you don't look like you've gotten any sun, but you have had sun. Like, it's not like you're burnt or something. No, but I'm kind of like the Incredible Hulk. Like, oh. I feel like I've had gamma radiation. Okay. And on the inside, my cells are reacting like, stop, I'm a pasty white Scotsman. What are you doing? <laughs> well, as long as you don't turn green, I'm okay with mm-hmm. that. Um, I'm My skin is doing a patchy thing, which is interesting. It's really cool. Yes. You were very blotchy in the sun. Yes. So that's that's new. It's a great look. But once you're indoors, it goes away. It does? Yeah. You look much better indoors. Outdoors, I was a little bit worried. Oh, dear. But you were out in the sun for forever. I was, and I didn't have any sunscreen on today, but I, I tend to not burn. Right. We had our church. Wait, you didn't have suntan on? Sunscreen? Sunscreen, that's the thing. No. That was not a good idea, darling. You are, you are a naughty girl. <laughs> okay, but I didn't burn. Well, whether you're feeling the effects of the sun's radiation on your skin is, is quite a different matter from whether you burned. Oh. Your skin received the effects of the radiation of the sun. Okay. I had a remarkable outdoorness today. We had our church family picnic. We did. So after church today, we were all in a giant field and there was ice cream and inflatables and... You know, Water inflatables. And you were in a dunk tank, which I missed somehow. Um, I And I'd like to say uh, somebody came out to me uh, indoors and they were... I was reflecting on the fact that there was like a lineup of people waiting to dunk me. Of course, you're horrible. <laughs> and she said, well, college... Colleges do dunk tanks for professors to raise money, and typically it's either the professors that they hate or the professors that they love that have the longest lineups. And I was like, "Well, let's just hope they dunked me because they love me." And she just laughed. So, but didn't confirm or deny. Well, um, she's a very kind person who I'm sure would never say it was because they didn't like. Tremendous ministry of encouragement you got there, mystery woman. (laughs) One of the things I enjoyed most about this afternoon. Was the ice cream stand that wasn't ice cream. Yeah, it was uh, some sort of ice, wasn't it? It was flavored ice. But that sounds gross. This was delicious. It was so good. You would have sworn it was ice cream. Mm -hmm. It was basically just really good sorbet. You realize we've done this all wrong. We started at the end of our week rather than the beginning of our week. I think because we were excited about the ice cream. Well, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, we've had a lot of sun because then we came home and went to the pool. We did. And that was great. And then we ate dinner outdoors. And I had breakfast outdoors this morning, so I'm... Goodness, you have really, you I'm, have I'm brought in... I'm not darker than I am. Well, you had sunscreen on. Well, I'm glad one of us did. Yes, but you just think your vitamin D will be mm. high, so that's good. Ask me what the highlight of my week was. Um, What was the highlight of your week? Well, in June, for Apple nerds, our Super Bowl happens. Yes. It, it, Apple hosts a worldwide developers conference that... I didn't get to go to. I, I've actually never been to. It would all be over my head. But what they do is they stream the keynote address, which is kind of dumbed down for the public, which I appreciate. This year was two hours long, and Apple released and previewed a bunch of new hardware and new software, which made me super giddy. That's very cool. Now ask me if I've installed the beta software. Have you installed the beta software? I don't have to ask you. I know you have. Well, I've matured this year. You did? Because I've only installed it on my test hardware. I haven't installed it on the actual hardware I use. Really? It's not on your iPad? It is, but, you know, I bank my iPad Uh, as my test hardware. Oh. oh. It's not what I use day to day. (laughs) Okay. You're so funny. I'm like, I have no idea what test hardware is, but I'm pretty sure it's on something. Well, for example, it's not on my current phone. Good decision. I'll wait a couple of betas. It becomes frustrating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So So anyway, that was Monday. I loved it. It was amazing. So good. Yeah, thank you. And then Tuesday, you got to go canoeing. 
I did. How come I never get invited to go canoeing? Um, you're invited every year and you refuse to go. That's correct. And I have about 15 really big bug bites on my body from that particular canoe trip. Yeah. Was your 15 bug bites worth it? Yeah, it was awesome. You are so weird. I don't understand it. It was really good, but it did start chucking it down with rain in the middle of the canoe trip. And then apparently there was thunder and lightning. I did hear the thunder. I didn't see the lightning. So I was the lead canoe and we just kept going. And then it turns out afterwards there was a fair amount of lightning that I just sort of missed. So that was a bad decision. But You're making great decisions this week. I don't need sunscreen because I don't burn. <laughs> and there was only thunder, so there probably wasn't any lightning. Well, I just, you know, yeah, I'm just living on the edge. Mm-hmm. Living on the edge. And Wednesday was a fun day. You finished your theology class. Yeah, I've I've been teaching a six-week beginner's guide to theology. I'd like to overemphasize the beginner's part mm. because I'm by no means a theologian, but I do have a passing amateur interest in theology. And I see enough bad theology out there that I thought, I'm going to teach six weeks of just the foundation so it helps people spot wonky theology faster. If, you, if you've got any interest in that, you're in luck, because I'm going to play you the first part of that <laughs> for, oh, good. for this week, yeah. Okay, good. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, i got to finish it. Thank you to everybody who came out. I had, uh, I got my test results back from my doctor. Are you human? I am. Okay, perfect. Slightly cyborg, though. No, um, yeah, I had gone in uh, seeing a doctor who specializes in like hormones and vitamins and all that kind of stuff. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they took like... 14 vials of blood. I was concerned they weren't going to leave me any. Don't you need blood to live? I I asked the lady that. She said I was still okay, but uh, she slowed down after that. So that was good. <laughs> That's the cyborg part. <laughs> um, but apparently I am very B deficient and very D deficient and my thyroid is slow. So there's stuff to fix. Aren't you so B and D deficient that your lab results came back with a warning from the lab? Yes. This person should not be upright. Well, like saying stuff like, this person is probably dizzy, is experiencing tingling fingers, is experiencing neurological this, that, and the other. And uh, yeah, so they for both of those, I'm so low that the lab sent back warnings. So I guess I'm going to do some B shots and we're going we're gonna to reverse this puppy. Wow. Yeah. Puppies can go in reverse? Yeah, they do. It's hard, <laughs> but they can go in reverse. It's, me, me, it's a little awkward, me, you know. Me. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So, and apparently in a couple months, I'm going to feel absolutely amazing. Is that why you were out all day without any sunscreen? Because you're trying to get vitamin D from the sun? Yeah, that's why. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did the doctor prescribe that or was that just your uh, own sanity? That's just me being smart. You you're a Canadian yeah. with sunshine. I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Tia had her birthday party. She did. We had it on Saturday. She actually turns eight tomorrow. Tomorrow. But we had to have her party on Saturday and we had a great time. Yeah. That little yeah. chicken is so excited. She is. And we have everything ready for tomorrow. Well, I still have to go to Whole Foods and get her special requested cupcake mm-hmm. for breakfast. Breakfast in bed. Yep. Can I have cupcakes in nope. bed? Thanks for that. And so <laughs> basically all of this week has been overshadowed by the fact that I'm getting ready to go to Scotland. My father's funeral is this week. Yep. And so I'm going to be flying out shortly to Scotland. Mm-hmm. So I don't quite know how I feel about that. I remember at my mum's funeral when I was lowering or helping lower the casket into the grave, I was like, this is so surreal and real at the same time. You know what I was actually thinking? I don't know if this is appropriate to say, but I was like, dear Lord, my mum was really short because the coffin was tiny. Your mom was short. Oh, she was? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that I mean, why. not like uber short, but she couldn't have been taller than like five foot two. I, I don't think in terms of numbers. Oh. 
Okay. She couldn't have been taller than your armpit. <laughs> That's much better. You're welcome. I mentioned that I just finished a six-week course in theology about two minutes ago. And this week, you know, we're in this kind of strange phase where we're still semi-podcasting. We're not doing a normal podcast just because of all the funeral arrangements. And uh, so what we've been doing is we've just been hopping on like we have done, just said hello to everybody, talked about our week, kind of recapped. And then we've substituted in uh, a previous teaching that we've done. And this week's going to continue that trend. What you're going to hear is part one of the teaching from the course called The Beginner's Guide to Theology. You can actually watch all six of them on YouTube if you want. We'll put a link in the show notes for them. But I'm going to play that clip for you in a second. But what I wanted to say before we sign off this part is we just want to say thank you for all the love and prayers that we've received. This is a really hard season, but it's made so much easier by the fact that all of you are praying and sending your love, and I really, really appreciate it. I'd especially appreciate your prayers this week as I head back to Scotland. It's a, it's a little weird, babe, heading back to somewhere that used to be my home, but I actually have to leave my home in order to do so. Yeah, and you're a different person than when you live there as well. Yeah. So it's all just strange. But I tell you what, I am quite excited about being with my sister's in the home that we all grew up in. I mean, we're all now grown-ups, but I don't know whether I just have a Hollywood romanticized version of what that's going to be like, but part of me thinks the four of us are going to be just laughing our heads off as we're finding things that we completely forgot about hmm. in the home, you know, like photos and weird things that, you know, my sister's found in the attic and this, that, and the next thing. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to getting some good Indian food. And of course, <gasps> oh. visiting Marks and Spencers. Oh, I think I'm just going to visit and Marks Spencers. and Spencers and just stand in the food aisle and just <gasps> you, you stare. Sh- you should get the peanut lime chicken. Remember that, like oh. the grilled chicken that they have? And then... Lady, oh. I have a list of things. Oh, the I'm prawn getting. crackers. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm. For those of you who don't have a clue what we're talking about, Marks and Spencers is God's gift to the United Kingdom. It is a, I guess it's a department store. I guess it's a department store. It is. But I don't go there for anything other than the food. Well, they have like a, a food section that's like um, kind of prepackaged stuff. Well, they have real groceries too, but they have like a huge section of stuff. Like if Ready you just, prepared meals and lunches. And it's good. I mean, it's just really good. And you can eat healthy and st- and still it's really good. I'm going to try and petition them to come to America. Yes, Start go for in it. Franklin, Tennessee. I, I concur. Uh, they would do so well here. Oh my here. gosh, they would make a killing. You know, Williamson County moms in Lululemon sweatpants coming straight from the gym. Right. Just stopping at right. Marks and Spencer's on the way home and that uh, would just be amazing. It'd be perfect. Yeah. And then you're probably going to go to Pizza Express as well. Well, there isn't one in Dundee. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm going to have to go somewhere um, else for that. <gasps> but I'm going to try. Really? Mm, baked dough balls. Um, Don't get me started. Oh, Coke and glass bottles. Mm. Mm. Anyway, uh, so yes, pray for me for all the other stuff that's not food related. Um, Because I'm going to be away, there's going to be no podcast next week. It's just going to be too taxing for us to put something together. But we'll be back to normal, hopefully, doing our regular podcast show uh, the following week. If, If you are interested, you can follow along in my adventures in Scotland on Instagram this week. I'm at Alan on Instagram, A-L-Y-N. I'll be Instagram storying the whole trip. Well, not the whole trip. It'd be weird to Instagram story the funeral, but you that, never know. That would be odd. And if you want to uh, 
follow me as I try and stay sane with three children who miss their father, you can follow me too. And what's your Instagram handle? Oh, what is my Instagram handle? It's uh, underscore AJ Jones, I think. I've already taken care of the kids though, because MJ said, I'm not going to miss you and I'm not going to cry because you're bringing me back presents, plural. He didn't say plural, but he did clarify, if you just bring me back chocolate, I will cry and I will miss you. But if you bring me back a present and chocolate, it'll all be good. (laughs) Well, okay. I I kind of don't believe him because the last time you went away for like four days, he lost it. So this is a stretch. This is your last reminder for this year that applications to SOSL, our eight-month School of Supernatural Life, close this week on Wednesday June 15th, to be precise, is when apps close. So if you've been on the fence, either for thinking about doing first year or second year, now is the time to get your application in. Head over to gracecenter.us slash school to get more information and to start your application. We also just want to thank you guys for being so patient with us as we've been doing something different for the last couple of weeks. Here's Alan teaching the first session of A Beginner's Guide to Theology. And the topic this week is is the confidence that we have in the Bible. It's a great teaching. I know you're going to love it. We'll see you in two weeks. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for an evening. Just thank you, Lord, for this amazing day where we got to enjoy all of your creation. We got to enjoy um, just the sun and being outside. Lord, I thank you for this Wednesday evening where we get to come, we get to relax, we get to look at your word and we get to study together. And Lord Jesus, I pray a spirit of peace over everybody who's terrified by the thought of a title of theology, Lord. And I just ask that you would bind up any spirits that would tell us that we're not smart enough to know this and that we would just be totally at peace, remembering that you are a great teacher, Lord Jesus, and that you lead us when we're humble. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? And would you give us an amazing time of fellowship in the Holy Spirit this evening? Amen. Well, I'm so glad that you're here for the first of six weeks together, where we gather together for a beginner's guide to theology. Now, before we jump into anything, it's deliberately called a beginner's guide because theology belongs to the students of God. All right, so if we all get to be to be beginners, we're going to be in a great place. I like to think that theology belongs to students of God, not experts of God, because whenever we become experts in anything, there is a temptation to believe that we no longer need to learn, and that's a dangerous place to be. So personally speaking, I've purposed in my heart to always remain a student of God and His ways, and so I'm a beginner too. Second thing, I think it was J.I. Packer, I'll I'll talk about um, Packer later, but I think he said, God said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. So the word of God is not high and lofty. It's not unavailable uh, to the lowly. Jesus often said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. And I want to encourage us, if, if we approach things of the kingdom with tremendous humility, we will find it's tremendously easy to grasp the things of the kingdom. So that's why I'm talking about a beginner's guide to theology. The second thing I want to talk about is why theology? It's an interesting topic to uh, spend a Wednesday night talking about. I'd like to suggest that we want a good grasp of theology because theological mindedness assuming that it's centered on sound doctrine and true spirituality, is the best remedy for the situation described in this verse here. In Ephesians, 
Paul writes this, then we will no longer be immature like children. None of us woke up this morning thinking, man, I really want to be immature in my faith. Maturity is the goal. And so he's saying, hey, if we, and we're going to read on again, if we have an understanding of God's word and relationship with Jesus, we're no longer going to be immature. We won't be tossed and blown about by every kind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. We don't want to be people who are tossed and blown about by every new wind of teaching. May I have an amen on that? Most of what passes as new teaching today is repackaged old heresy. But we need to know what the truth is in order to recognize a counterfeit. So our goal in these six weeks is not to become so attuned to the counterfeit. Rather, we want to just immerse ourselves in the truth so that we can easily tell when something is fake. This is what I say next is the only negative thing I'm going to say tonight. So if you think we're going downhill, we're really not. But as a pastor, as a teacher, I'm tired of watching people I love by being influenced by people who trick them with clever lies that sound like the truth. And here's the thing. I believe that every one of us, every Christian is called to be a theologian. Now, here's the beautiful part about that is you don't have to have a degree to be a theologian. You don't have to be a minister to be a theologian. You don't even have to be in full-time Christian service to be a theologian. We just need to be people who place a high value on God's word and have a humble, teachable heart. I'm looking, we've got lots of people coming in. We're going to need some spaces. If you've got space next, you put up your hand. We've got some people looking for spaces. If it gets any more, any more crazy, Matt and Tim, do you mind putting out some more chairs if we need to? All right, perfect. Thank you. So we're looking at this verse, Ephesians 4, verse 14. The preceding verses, they say this. It says, again, Paul's writing here. He says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up in the knowledge of the Son of God. As a teacher, part of my job is to prepare other people for works of service. It's my job to help people get mature in the knowledge of God. And so it gives me tremendous joy to spend an evening with you doing just that, starting on this journey together. But it's not just my job to do that. It's also yours too. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Part of all of our responsibilities as followers of Christ is to be somebody who correctly handles the Word of God. Somebody who is familiar, who's not intimidated by the Scriptures. But you might be asking yourself, why would a follower of Christ need to put so much effort into that? Because look at the words there. Do your best. uh, Be a worker. Be somebody who correctly handles the Word of Truth. Well, The reason for that is found later in 2 Timothy, and Paul warns one of his leaders, he says this, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
don't know if you're aware, but I think we might be living in that time. So that a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. One of the encouragements, one of the encouragements I want to give us all tonight is we need to not only know sound doctrine, but also hold to it. We need to be people who don't turn their ears away from truth. Now, I don't mean to be critical in what I say, so forgive me if I sound that way, but there are many in the church, and I say this without shame, who don't know the truth. What I mean by that is they know bits and pieces of the truth, but with the absence of a larger picture of truth, and in our postmodern world, what ends up happening is we fill the gaps of our knowledge with what sounds true. There's a, there's a present trend today in our culture, but certainly in Christianity, where we've become very, very man-centered and woman-centered, self-centered really, in our Christianity. And it ends up with a, well, what's in it for me type of thinking. What that's done is created a vacuum that's actually left us as a church quite powerless and in a superficial state. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. What we've ended up with is for a large portion of the church, there are too many Christians who sadly cannot tell you for sure what they believe or why they believe it. And there are too many Christians who actually know very little about the history of the Christian church. How many of you recognize this fellow? This is our dear friend, Artie Kendall, a dear friend of the house. And, and personally, he's been very, very helpful in my preparation for these next six weeks. He's very generously given me permission to borrow liberally from his notes. And I want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, large portions of my teachings in the next six weeks come from people like R.T., uh, another gentleman called Wayne Grudem, both of whose theology texts I'll be giving you towards the end of this course for uh, further research. If, you're, if what I've said to you is like, oh, I would love to know more about that, I can direct you to some excellent resources. But R.T. says this, he says, church history is the laboratory of theology. Knowledge of the past will help us understand the present and face the future. So it's worth starting at the start of this six-week journey. It's worth asking ourselves, why study theology and not just the Bible? Well, I want to suggest two reasons to us. The first is it can be really, really easy to learn facts about the Bible and yet miss the important principles that lie behind the facts. So for example, we all know the story of Adam and Eve, right? We learned it in Sunday school. We're familiar with it. But knowing about Adam and Eve is quite different from knowing about the implications for marriage and the family that Adam and Eve, the reason we have that in Genesis, or the nature of sin and temptation, the results of the fall. Secondly, theology, the theology that we have today is partly shaped by church history, what RT was talking about. And this, as you know, none of us can actually live in isolation from the past. So all of us, we have biases. We have biases we're aware of, and we have biases, more dangerously, that we're unaware of. 
And they, those biases were, by and large, passed on to us by those who lived before us. So if you think about it, I mean, when you read Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has built his teaching on those who preceded him. In that passage, he's talking about Abraham and later David. So our minds, when we come to read the Bible, have been shaped by great thinkers. Theologians often quote Luther and Calvin. But Luther and Calvin quoted Augustine and Athanasius, people that preceded them. So there's a danger. You know, we talk about this and we're like, well, no, no, no. I'm just going to read the Bible like Paul. I'm like, well, that's, that's great. But the chances are we're still going to have our prejudices. And it's important that we understand what our prejudices are, how we got them, and if they need some correcting. So let's start with the elementary stuff. We're talking about a beginner's guide to theology. So when we talk about theology, theology literally means the study of God's word. Theology comes from these two Greek words. Now, we're not going to get lost in Greek and Hebrew in these six weeks. We're not going to get lost at all. But for those of you who are interested, theology is from theos, which means God, and logos, which means word. Now, I don't need to tell the people in this room, because you already picked this class out of other ones, that theology is not a bad word. I grew up in a church that was very, very word-oriented and not so much spirit-oriented. And then I moved to some other churches that were very, very Holy Spirit-oriented and not so much word-oriented. And with the same kind of disdain that the church I grew up in talked about those weirdo charismatics that just, you know, all they want to do is get drunk and lie on the floor and soak, right? The disdain that my church upbringing talked about those people, I found that when I moved to more Holy Spirit churches, we had a disdain about all these, you know, like these evangelicals, all they want to do is read the Bible, they've got no experience. I'm not sure if you're familiar with biases that exist like that. But theology is not a bad word. Once upon a time, it was regarded as the queen of sciences, Fancy that. Just two or three centuries ago, the greatest minds aspire to be theologians or clerics. Today, it's likely that better minds aspire to be anything but. And the trouble is, along the way, we've had, forgive me, uninteresting preachers, fairly dull theologians, and less able teachers where they've moved in where spiritual giants used to live. And I would love to see this trend corrected. And I hope that you get as much fun out of going through these six weeks as I've had just putting them together. My encouragement is if you think that learning theology does not come naturally, I want to encourage you. We have the mind of Christ. We have the very mind of the person that we're studying. And if we're humble, God will draw close. I'll give you a simple formula here in pictures. Sound theology combines both the mind and the heart. One without the other usually leads to error. And I I joked about the error that I had growing up in the church that I grew up in and then in some later churches. But if we are mind only, which would have been some of the churches I've spent time in, where if we approach the kingdom from a purely intellectual pursuit, the emphasis on the intellect can actually be quite dangerous. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, but knowledge puffs up while love 
builds up. It's important for us to understand that our intellect is only one part of our personality. And the danger is that intellectual stimulus alone can breed pride, which leads to self-righteousness. This was one of the tragedies of the Pharisees. They thought that God could be understood by intellectual assent. And the sad part is, is a record in Scripture where Jesus is talking to them and said, you study the Scriptures in vain, and yet you miss the day of your visitation. You don't recognize that I'm the person the Scriptures testify about. Wouldn't it be tragic to devote ourselves to an intellectual pursuit of God and miss Him entirely? To spend all our time looking here instead of there. This is, if I'm honest, what turned me off from the study of theology. Because I saw too many people who were speaking about God who'd never experienced the heart of God. And so their, their whole identity seemed to be a race to see who could absorb the most knowledge about the Bible to out-talk people who had less knowledge of the Bible. And it was somewhat nauseating. And the tragedy is that we can actually exalt the mind and dethrone the spirit. And if we're not careful, we could actually make an idol out of the very thing that's supposed to lead us to God. So that's if we lean too heavily on the intellect. What about when we lean too heavily on the heart? I see people, I meet people, I talk to people who are like, ah, I just want Jesus. I don't want the word. And that's ironic because Jesus is the word. And so what ends up happening, these people are full of passion. Don't get me wrong, they love the Lord, but either through bad teaching or a poor experience in a quote-unquote word church, they're kind of steering away from that and they're just going, they're, they're being led by what feels like God. Being led by what feels like God is really dangerous because in essence, we're making what we feel more of an authority than God's word. And one of the biggest errors I see today is Christians trying to make God in their image. They're deciding what God is like based on what they feel is like. The trouble is, Paul said in this verse, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. So if we're allowing our feelings, our conscience to say, well, I don't think God's like that because it just doesn't feel like God to me. Just because you feel that, just because you testify, no, no, honestly, that's how I feel, doesn't mean that we're right. And that's what I love about the Bible that we're going to be talking about later today. We don't need to let our feelings speak for God. We let God speak for God. And so if we're not careful, pursuing theological advances by heart alone could lead to an overemphasis on emotional feeling. And ignoring the intellectual side of our personality can lead to false pride and self-righteousness. I found a fascinating verse in Obadiah 1.3. I didn't even know this verse was here, but it says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Oh, Lord, may we just have humble hearts and not go into deception. So it's important, as we're going through these six weeks, of course, we're using our minds and our heart, but it is more important, I might suggest, that we bathe everything we learn in humility and in prayer. How many of you have ever benefited by watching Christians argue in a Facebook comment thread? 
I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminianist. You know, and just go back and forth. You're like, how is this bringing glory to Jesus? You guys are fighting. And so we want to avoid that. We want to be people who are humble and bathed in prayer. R.T. said this. He said, the best theology will be shaped on our knees. Ah, I love that line. He goes on to say, prayer is the antidote to dullness and intellectual pride. So we find that prayer is the vehicle by which our hearts remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You know, part of the nature of God is he leads us to places that sometimes we don't comprehend. And I think we get into trouble trying to pry out of heaven that which the Holy Spirit is not currently revealing. And so if we can just settle in our heart that what the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal isn't worth knowing, I think we'll stay away from from error. I say all this to kind of encourage us that in the next six weeks, I'm going to do my best to not just lean all on our intellect, but also give us something inherently practical to do. I don't want this course to be so heavenly minded that it's of no earthly use. And I remember what Bill Johnson said. He said, Bible study without Bible experience is pointless. So let's not just amass knowledge for knowledge's sake. Let's use it for maturity so we can know God and his word better, not so that we can argue with other Christians better. It'd be horrible. All right, let me jump into theology. Generally speaking, theology has seven different branches. I'm going to give you an overview of them, just you know, as a tour guide to say, oh, this is some of the places we could be going, and then we'll jump into our topic for this evening. The first branch of theology I'm going to talk about is Revelation. Now, this is not about the last book of the Bible. This is talking more about the inspiration of the Bible. So this branch deals with the Word of God, And the word revelation comes from the Greek word meaning unveiling. It means to unveil what is hidden. And so this branch is all about the way God has revealed himself in the Bible by the Holy Spirit. And there's a sense that the word revelation and scripture are used interchangeably. The second branch is cosmology. I could make a joke, but I won't. It's like about how to... How to put on makeup and that sort of stuff, okay? It's not. Cosmology deals with creation. It comes from the, the word cosmos and logos. It's the study of creation. So this branch partly deals with the question, did God create the world? Was there some intentional design or did it just evolve and happen by chance? The third branch is anthropology. Deals with the whole topic of us, you and me. It's the study of humankind. So it partly deals with a similar overlap to cosmology. Was man created or did we evolve? It also deals with uh, important questions like, is the human race fallen? Is the human just body and soul? Or are we body, soul, and spirit? And topics of human psychology would fall underneath that. Excuse me, number four, soteriology. This is the study of salvation. Now, in case you're thinking there's a lot of big words in this class, this is as large, this page has all the big words. After this page, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So this is all about the study of salvation or the study of redemption. Again, words can be used interchangeably. And this is probably the widest area with which we'll play in over the next six weeks. 
So things like atonement and justification and faith and law, that sort of stuff. Number five is pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, all the, the study of the Holy Spirit. And so this talks about things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Are the gifts still available for today? Or was there a great cessation? Did the gifts stop the last of the apostles? Stop me if I'm going too fast. Number six, ecclesiology. This is the study of the church. So all of church life is discussed in here. Things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, issues of church and state, church government. Can women be church leaders? All that sort of stuff is generally discussed in that branch. And then the last one is eschatology, which is all about the last days. So things like the second coming of Christ, prophecy, judgment, heaven and hell. And we'll do that when the kids join us because they love that topic. <laughs> Tonight we're going to talk about the blood of the lamb, children. Are we okay? (laughs) Now here's the thing. We're not going to go through all seven of those, in part because we only have six weeks, and in part that is a massive topic to get through. But we are going to visit some of them, stop by, and I am going to give you, like I said, at the end of the course, a bunch of really, really accessible resources that will go into more depth than you could possibly imagine about any of those topics. The topic I do want to talk about tonight is uh, all about the Word of God. Now, for a number of reasons, I think this would be a great place to start. But primarily, I can't think of a better foundation to look at than to talk about the Bible, because the Bible is the very book that we're going to use to guide us through the remainder of the weeks. And so if we're not sure on the Bible, everything else is going to be a little bit shaky. So it's going to be the foundation that we use. Guys, welcome. Pick up a flyer at the back. Come in and find a seat wherever you are. So good to see you. Sorry for calling you out. Everybody look this way. Nothing's happening at the back. Ha ha ha, everything's fine. (laughs) You know, an assumption in historic Protestant evangelicism, of which we're all a part of, is that the Bible is the Word of God. So like I grew up never ever doubting that the Bible wasn't completely true. However, there's an emergence of something called neo-orthodoxy. Now, I apologize. I said there's going to be no more big words. I'm pretty sure that's my last big word. So neo-orthodoxy literally means new orthodoxy, a new orthodoxy. It was championed by people like Karl Bath and Emil Brunner in the early part of last century. So after the First World War, this kind of came around. And the kind of growing thought was kind of a more liberal thought that, well, Parts of the Bible are true. Parts of the Bible are inspired. The problem with that kind of thinking, of course, is no one really knew for sure which part of the Bible they were talking about. So the the end result of this theology was that, well, God for sure spoke through the Bible, but we never really clearly defined which parts he was speaking in and which parts were just allegorical. Fast forward to today, And there are some very prominent teachers who've gone further to claim that, well, now that science has disproved the Bible, there are parts of the Bible that don't hold up well to scientific criticism, so we can safely say that those parts of the Bible can't be trusted. Don't get me wrong, 
they're good parts of the Bible and they're helpful and everything, but we can't actually have confidence that the Bible is true. They would still claim that they're followers of Christ, but they would also claim that parts of the Bible are just stories, perhaps beautiful poetry, mere allegories found within this beautiful writing that do have value for spiritual matters, but they're not real descriptions of real events and they're not applicable today. What that means, starting with neo-Orthodoxy and moving on to more liberal um, theologies, is it gives us, if we believe that, license to be selective about which scriptures we believe in. For example, one of the theologians I taught about, Emil Brunner, he didn't actually believe in the virgin birth. Some of the more contemporary people I've been talking about, I just was listening to a podcast the other day, said that Genesis really is no more than a poem. Uh, and, you know, these, these weren't real people. If we begin entertaining those thoughts, it leads us to this question. If we can't trust part of God's word, how can we trust any of God's word? And that's the important question I want to look at tonight. Now, before we begin, in case you've just joined us and you've heard me say a whole lot of stuff, you're like, wait, are we in the right place? I absolutely believe that the Bible is infallible. And what I mean by infallible is this definition, the belief that the books of the Old and New Testament as originally written were without error in what they affirm. Now, you'll hear me talk about inerrancy and infallibility. They're interchangeable terms. Now, a couple of statements just to help uh, put some boundary lines up to what we're talking about, and then we'll just jump in and explore stuff. Is everybody good, by the way? I forgot to check. You're all quiet. Is it hot in here? Is it cold? Time always too hot, so I'd make it colder if I could, but you didn't bring your winter jacket, so that wouldn't be kind. So a couple of statements to help just kind of shore up this definition here. I would be confident in saying that Scripture in the original manuscripts, does not affirm anything that is contrary to God. So there's nothing in the Bible that is contrary to God. I would also state that the Bible always tells the truth, and it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. Now let me just clarify that statement. That does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know, but it does affirm that what it does say about any subject is true. You with me so far? You're like, Alan, there's not enough pictures for this. I'm sorry. You try finding clip art for theology. <laughs> in this statement, the belief that the books of the Old and New Testament was originally written were without error in what they affirm. What that means is all the words in the Bible are God's words. And what that means is to disbelieve or disobey any word in Scripture is biological steps is to disobey or disbelieve God. Again, just to be very, very clear, what I'm saying is that all words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. Now this, so funny, every generation faces a crisis of this statement, okay? And so the crisis I'm seeing among my peers, a crisis is people who are just like, well, I'm not sure that's true. That is not a new crisis of faith. It's the old trick that devil's played time and time again. We're going to look at some resources as well. Dr. Michael Eaton said this, inerrancy means that when all facts are known, 
the scriptures in their original autographs and properly integrated will be shown to be totally true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. Now, that is a bold claim. But I hope you're going to see it is a true claim. The reason why I'm confident it's a true claim is because look at what this verse says in Psalms 138, verse 2. The psalmist writing says, For you, speaking of the Lord, have magnified your word above all your name. The Bible is God's integrity put on the line. If the Bible is not completely truthful, neither is God. And that means the foundation of our faith is at stake. The most common fruit that I see from people questioning the inerrancy of Scripture is falling away from their faith. That doesn't happen overnight, but it makes sense. If we're doubting what the Bible says, then how can we have confidence in what Christ says? The only source for the truthfulness of the Christian faith is the Bible. And all we believe about Jesus stands or falls in proportion to the reliability of Scripture. One of the things we teach on the school is whenever you get a prophetic word, it has to go sifted through the Word of God. The Apostle Paul said, even if an angel appears and preaches something contrary to what we taught you or preaches another gospel, let him be eternally damned. But there's people out there who are having quote-unquote visitations from the Lord telling them things that are contrary to Scripture. And they're fantastical and they're amazing, but they're false. Similarly, at the other end of the spectrum, from the spiritual over the intellectual, there's intellectual debate and intellectual talk that's coming to the same conclusion, albeit without the supernatural. Going, ah, well, is it? So it's important that we settle it in our heart regarding the reliability of Scripture. Let's let the Bible talk for itself for a second. I'm going to go through a bunch of verses. I'm going to read them out. I've written them down for you. You can go back and read them in your own time. In the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 28, says that God cannot lie or speak falsely. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not um, fulfill? How about Psalms 12, verse 6? And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay. Or how about Psalm 119, verse 89? Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. Then in the New Testament, continuing the theme that we just talked about, that God cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2, it says, A faith and knowledge resting in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Or Hebrews 6.18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Again, the Old Testament and the New Testament are testifying that God cannot lie. 
Continuing the theme that God's word is fully reliable is Matthew 24, verse 35. The words of Jesus, who we follow, said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. John 17, verse 17. Jesus is declaring that the word of God is the ultimate standard of truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul is including the Old Testament here where he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Peter verse 1 says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 3.16, almost done. Uh, this, is, this is the apostle Peter claiming or endorsing that the words of Paul, he's, he's recognizing by the Holy Spirit, but their scripture, he says this, he writes, speaking about Paul, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is recognizing, hey, Paul's writings and, and the other scriptures, he's holding them together. Also in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, Paul writes this, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. You know, elsewhere, you're probably familiar where Paul says, he's writing and he says, hey, I, not I, but the Lord say this, or I, Paul, not the Lord. And he's making this distinction but the distinction is, hey, everything else that's written that is not me saying, hey, this is my opinion, is actually the Lord. In 1 Timothy 5.18, this is for free, by the way, it's not up there. Paul quotes Jesus's words as found in Luke 10 verse 7 and refers to them as scripture. So there is a brief summary, but a fairly exhaustive survey of some of the verses in the Old and New Testament testifying in the word of God that the word of God is God's word. Now, for those that believe the Bible, this is very helpful and very comforting. For those that don't, this is an example of what we call circular reasoning. So circular reasoning is, well, I believe that scripture is God's word because it claims to be that. And I believe it's claims because scripture is God's word. And I believe that it is God's word because it claims to be that and so on and so forth. You understand the problem with that? So for those of us who believe, we're like, oh, I'm so encouraged by the reading of that. To anybody who's skeptical, they're just like, well, that's just circular reasoning. The Bible says it's God's word and so you just expect me to believe that. Circular reasoning at its finest. Now here's the thing. It absolutely is circular reasoning. However, that shouldn't actually concern us because all arguments for an absolute authority must ultimately appeal to that absolute authority for proof. You with me? Let me say that again. All arguments for an absolute authority must ultimately appeal to that authority for proof. Otherwise, that authority would not be absolute or a highest authority. You see? For those of you who are like, no, I don't see. Let me give you some examples. 
The problem of circular reasoning is not unique to the Christian who is arguing for the authority of the Bible. Everyone, either implicitly or explicitly, uses some kind of circular argument when defending his or her ultimate authority for belief. You're like, Alan, give me an example. All right, well, let's talk about reason. Well, my reason is my ultimate authority because it seems reasonable to me to make it so. Or for those people who just, for the men in the room, no offense, who love to just, you know, rely on, you know, logic. We say things like, well, logical consistency is my ultimate authority because it is logical to make it so. Or for those people who want to refuse authority is, hey, I, I know there can be no ultimate authority because I do not know of any such ultimate authority. Unfortunately, in making that statement, you've made yourself the ultimate authority. Or how about this one? But the feelers, the findings of human sensory experiences are the ultimate authority for discovering what is real and what is not. Because our human senses have never discovered anything else. Thus, human sensory experience tells me that my principle is true. All of those are circular reasoning. So let's take the question at face value. Are there errors in the Bible? Because critics who would say that the Bible is not infallible, are not inerrant, will point out some things and say, ah, see these inconsistencies, hey, see there are some errors. Now, hopefully... We're not in that camp. We realize that the Bible says no. The Bible always tells the truth and it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. And in areas where we feel confused about that, we're actually called to put more faith in the word of God than anything else, trusting that it will become so. But here's the thing. I mentioned this before. The definition that I've used for the infallibility of scripture does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject. For example, the Bible does not talk about Wi-Fi, and yet there is Wi-Fi, right? But it does affirm that what it does say about any subject is true. Here's some edge case scenarios I want to talk about. The Bible can still be inerrant, can still be infallible, and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. What do you mean now? Well, let me give you some examples. This is especially true. This statement here that the Bible can still be inerrant and speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech is especially true in scientific or historical descriptions of facts or events. So for example, the Bible can speak of the sun rising because from the perspective of the speaker, this is exactly what's happening. So for example, I have a I have a 10-year-old daughter, I have a 7-year-old daughter, and a 4-year-old son. And every morning we have a lemon plant that we're trying to grow lemons on. Because, I don't know, maybe that's cheaper than going to Whole Foods. I'm not quite sure why we're trying to do that. But every morning they open the back porch and they walk out and they say, Good morning, lemony snicket. And depending on what time they get up and say good morning, you know, Abigail might stand on the back porch and say, Hey, Daddy, look, the sun is rising. Now, I could be very, very scientific and say, Well, actually, it's not. It's the earth rotating around its axis, and as we turn towards the sun, we enter its light. 
Now that's hopelessly pedantic, and I'm going to exhaust my child every time I correct her with that, but we all know what we mean by a sunrise and a sunset. This also applies to when we think about numbers in, in Scripture. If, if a reporter claims that 8,000 men were killed in battle without implying that they've actually counted every number, we're okay with that. Yes? If roughly 8,000 men were killed, it would be false to say that 16,000 people died that day. But it wouldn't be false in most contexts to say 8,000 people were killed that day when actually 7,879 were killed or 8,113 were killed. The limits of truthfulness would actually depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by the hearers. Are you with me? Same with measurements. Whether I say, I don't live far from my office, or I just live down the road from my office, or I live five minutes away from my office, or I live a mile from my office, all four statements are approximations to some degree of accuracy. It should not trouble us then that the Bible is absolutely truthful in everything it says and yet uses ordinary languages to describe natural phenomenon or give approximations or round numbers to describe things when they're appropriate in context. Inerrancy, infallibility has to do with truthfulness, not with the degree of precision with which events are reported. Does that make sense? The Bible can still be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. This is an important one. Now, the reason I'm pointing these out is if you spend some time online, people will be like, ha ha, the Bible is not without error because of X, and they'll pull up some examples like this. I'm giving the arguments against it. In American written culture, we put a person's exact words in quotation marks, right? So when we're reading, if we're reading a newspaper article or we're reading a magazine article and they're quoting a politician, they will put the exact words in quotation marks. When there are no quotation marks, we only expect an accurate report of the substance of the statement. You say, Alan, give me an example. All right. I'm at home and, you know, my four-year-old is like, Daddy, when is mummy coming home? And so I call AJ and I say, Hey, AJ, you know, uh, where are you? And she says, oh, I'm at the bank, and then I'll be home. When I say to my son after I hang up, and he's like, oh, you know, when's mommy going to come home? And I said, and I say to my son, mommy said she'll be home in five minutes. I'm actually making an acceptable and truthful report of AJ's statement, even though I didn't include any of her original words. Are you, are you with me on that? Right? I'm not deceiving my son. I'm not lying to him. Now, why do I use this example? Because the written Greek of the time that the New Testament was written had no quotation marks or equivalent kinds of punctuation. Let me say that again. So the, the Greek that the New Testament was written in that has been translated into English that we read, they had no quotation marks or equivalent kinds of punctuation and an accurate citation of another person needed to include only a correct representation of what that person said. There was no expectation that you had to cite every word exactly. So when the Old Testament is quoted by Jesus in the New Testament, 
or by the New Testament writers, the only expectation of that day was that the content wasn't false to what was originally stated. Are you with me so far? So when Jesus is quoting um, Isaiah, or when, the, when Paul is quoting Old Testament writers, people will be like, aha, it's not the same as what it was in the Old Testament. They missed a word. That wasn't the goal. The goal wasn't copying word for word verbatim. The goal was, are you accurately representing what was said by Isaiah or by the Old Testament prophets? Dr. Michael Eaton, who I quoted earlier, he said this, there's hardly a single exact quotation of an Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And critics of Scripture would be like, ha, just proves that it's not infallible. See, there's a, there's a mistake there. No, there's not a mistake. They're using free or loose quotations. It is no more of a mistake for me to say, mommy said she'll be home in five minutes than the fact that my, mom's, my wife said, oh, I'm at the bank and then I'll drive home. I'm translating the content of what was said appropriate to the hearer. We get a little bit technical here, but I'll include it anyway. The Bible can still be an errand and still have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. I don't want to get into detail here, but some of the writing in its original language in the Greek and the Hebrew and some places the Aramaic, some of the language in Scripture is super elegant and very stylistically excellent. Other writings are really rough, reflecting ordinary people talking of the, uh, the day. And the point is people would point out, ah, it's not very elegant speaking. But it's not about grammar, it's about truthfulness in speech. Have you ever watched an interview with somebody who's from a different part of the country or perhaps a different social standing than you're used to being in and they're getting a testimony from the person, you know, maybe an eyewitness from an accident and perhaps they're using colloquial slang that you're not familiar with but you can still get the gist of what they're saying. You don't think just because they didn't phrase it the way you would that they're lying, correct? It's the same thing that you find in here. Excuse me while I cough. <coughs> Number four. This is a big one because like people will jump on this one. So I'm, I'm just warning you. The Bible can still be inerrant and have errors of translation. Alan, how can that be? Isn't that incongruent? Well, when we're talking about inerrancy, we're talking about the original autographs. Now, when you, when, Alan, autographs, what are you talking about? Somebody signed an autograph? No, no, no. But the, the word autograph refers to the original copies that were written. And so the copies that we have that our English Bibles are translated from are, are ancient. They were copied from scribe to scribe. And so the comment about the Bible being inerrant is the original copies that the Lord spoke out, they are inerrant. No translator is infallible. You might have noticed from my slides or in your notes that when I'm quoting a verse, not only am I putting the Bible that I have used in there, but also the version of that translation. Why would I do that? I did that because on Sunday I was listening to Jeff and he quoted a verse and it said it was the NIV. And I looked at my NIV and I was like, that's not what my NIV said. And I was like, I bet you he's using an older revision. So I've, in my Bible software, I open up, I read the NIV 2011 edition. I open up the 1984 edition and there it is word for word what he had. Now, if you didn't know he was using the 1984 edition, you'd be like, hey, are you trying to pull a fast one, Pastor Jeff? Like, what's going on here? But let's take the New International Version, for example. There are three versions of that. It was first issued in 1978. 
It was updated in 1984, and it's been updated again in 2001. And there's some passages that you can bring, bring up and you can look at them. And what's happened is as bodies of scholars have worked along as new earlier autograph, as new earlier, um, uh, like when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, it was amazing for all these Bible translators because they were far older than any of the previous um, uh, original works that they had to copy from. So as... Um, as translators get together and realize, oh, okay, in light of this new material we found, we've updated these things. Some Bibles, well, let me just comment on the NIV for a second. There are subtle changes in the translations. Let's just take the NIV. There's subtle differences between the 1978, the 1984, and the 2011 as better source materials arrive. Some Bibles, like the Living Bible or the Message or the Passion Translation, are paraphrases. And so the solution to avoiding errors is to read multiple different versions of your Bible. By all means, read versions translated by one person. By all means, read translations that are easy to read, but study those versions translated by a committee. That makes sense? Everybody's still okay. Guys, it's so hot in here. I'm burning off. So many calories speaking, and I can't tell from your face if this is okay. Like, am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? Are you like, do a Sean Connery impersonation, lighten it up? Okay, I can't tell. All right. Mm-hmm. Amish money penny. All right. As you can imagine, there are some significant problems with denying biblical inerrancy. Let me talk about the consequences of these problems here. The first one is, and, and this should be obvious, is that several moral problems now confront us. For example, if we are not confident that the Bible is truthful, and yet the Bible says that God cannot lie, well, clearly he can because the Bible's not truthful. So may we now lie? If we're told to be imitators of God, for example, in Ephesians 5.1, if we deny the errancy of Scripture, we have to conclude that God intentionally spoke falsely to us in some things, so now we're free to do the same thing. Another issue is we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says. Since we've become convinced that God has not always told the truth in some matters, even minor matters in Scripture, we then logically have to come to the conclusion that God is capable of speaking falsely to us. This will have a significant effect on our ability to take God at his word. We'd be entitled to ask questions like, well, why should we trust him completely? Well, why why obey the rest of Scripture? Why hold on to promises or prophecy? Number three, third problem with denying inerrancy is, and this is the scariest one for me, is we make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word itself. When we use our minds to pass judgment on some section of God's word and pronounce them to be an error, we are saying, in effect, that we know truth more certainly 
and more accurately than God's word ever does or than God ever does. And that poses some significant problems. By the way, this is the root of all intellectual sin. I think I quoted this a while back when I was speaking at church, David Campbell's brilliant line. We said, if you do believe, if you don't believe the parts of the Bible you don't like, but you do believe the parts of the Bible you do like, you don't believe the Bible, you believe yourself. Number four, if the Bible is wrong about minor things, then it is inherently wrong about some major things too. See, this is the slippery slope. It's not a slippery slope. It's an open doorway to hell. But if we're saying, oh, well, this isn't true, right? If this isn't true, just by saying one part of the Bible isn't true, we've actually nullified a core truth that the Bible is God's word. A denial of inerrancy means that the Bible's teaching about the nature of Scripture and the truthfulness and reliability of God's Word is also false. So then we're not actually concerned about minor details. We're concerned about major doctrinal concerns in Scripture. For those of you nervous that I've got my phone out, don't worry. I've, I have now decided that I'm doing something about the heat because I'm about to pass out. So... Huddle together for warmth if you need to, right? <laughs> Tragically, it says that it's set at the temperature I want it at. So we're just going to do a Kickstarter. We're going to take up an offering right now for new air conditioning, <laughs> all right? Preferably one that doesn't go <clears throat> when it starts. All right, I got a bonus one. I, I read this last night. I thought, oh my gosh, I need to add that. See, you don't have it in your notes. This is number five. This is, this for me was like, Lord, in Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus meets the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were kind of the baby liberals of their day, right? When I mean liberals, I'm not talking about political party, I'm talking about liberal theologians, right? Because they didn't actually believe in the resurrection, right? So they held to a lot of teaching, but not just a small part called the resurrection. And so Jesus looked at them in Matthew 22, verse 29, and he said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Here's my point. Once you deny the inerrancy of the Bible, you don't have any basis for your teaching. And what happens is your life loses the power of God because it's not based on the word of God. If the Bible, if what the Bible says is not what God is saying, how can we ever live a life full of authority and life-transforming ability? Let me be very clear. If we deny the Bible, we deny God's power. All right, let's turn the corner and land this plane. You know, I'm encouraged. I'm, by the way, you know, I'm all for the intellectual pursuit of God. I'm all about the emotional pursuit of God. Absolutely. I think you have to have both, as you heard me say earlier, you end up on one ditch or another. But I'm encouraged that in our pursuit that we have to leave our confidence of our own intellect. We absolutely have to. 
Right, God gave us an intellect and it will take us so far. At one point, we have to be like the father whose child was, you know, was um, harassed by a demon. Where he said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So if you're struggling tonight with what I'm saying, you're in great company because God has tremendous mercy on people who are not like, ah, I don't believe and it's wrong. Ah, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we go like, God, I, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Help me, you know, I'm struggling with this part or that part. God has mercy on people who are humble. And so I want to help us with this question. How do we believe the Bible is the word of God? If there are all these consequences of denying biblical inerrancy and our whole goal is to pursue Christ for the rest of our days, this is a major thing we have to have settled. So how do we believe the Bible is true? Let me give you two ways to do it. The first, I'll tell you right now, isn't as effective as the second. But the first is the objective witness. What do you mean? Well, let me tell you and then tell you why they're not that helpful. The first one is what we've looked at tonight. What does the Bible say about itself? Read the Bible's claims for itself. The reason why this is not that helpful, and I say that in inverted commas, because anytime you read the Bible, it's going to be helpful. But from a purely logical outside perspective, what the Bible says about itself is the whole circular reasoning that I've talked about it. The second thing is archaeological confirmation. Here's, and that's helpful. I've met some people, like, it depends on how you're wired. Some people are like, oh, that's amazing. Like, as archaeological um, digs, as we, you know, find more cities that the Scriptures talk about, as we find the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, as we find other things, and we're working together, it's like, oh, shockingly enough, this confirms what the Bible's been saying for years. The trouble with that is archaeological confirmations are limited at best. The third thing is testimonies of those whose lives have been blessed by the Bible. So, you know, I met people all the time who just, you know, didn't want anything to do with God, but they had a praying grandmother and they just couldn't deny what, the way that, that their grandmother lived a life, the way they absolutely devote themselves to the teaching of the Bible, and it did something for them. The trouble is, testimonies have limited appeal. And then lastly, there's this deductive reasoning. What we've been trying to do tonight, and we're skimming the surface, like there's tomes written about this. Here's why deductive reasoning sometimes won't help certain people. I don't know who said it, but maybe you can tell me. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So if we're at the objective witness, that's number one. That does help. I've seen that happen. I've seen that help people. But number two, the second thing that's really going to help us is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And I say that because the same Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible lives within us and testifies that it is reliable. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. Says this, I am writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. Guys, not to scare you, there are people who want to lead you astray. They're not indifferent, they're not casual, they want to lead you astray. But the confidence here says, but you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know and what he teaches is true, it is not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. That is 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 to 27. 
And I read it from the New Living Translation, the second edition. 1 John 2, 26 and 27. Here is the ultimate issue. This is what it boils down to, is conviction must rest higher than reason. The same theologian that could not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin because it was medically impossible, believed that he was going to be raised from the dead, which is also medically impossible. You can't have it both ways. So at some point, like, we, we, reason will take us so far. As Graham Cook says, God is much too clever to be an intellectual. But conviction must rest higher than reason. By the way, everything we believe does not make sense to the rational mind. I mean, we've forgotten about it. The trouble is salvation is an offense to the mind. The cross of Jesus is an offense. But until we get to the other side of that offense, it's no longer offensive to us. It makes total sense. But it's the same with the inerrancy of Scripture. We have to cross that line and actually put, Trust that God is who he says he is. Otherwise, we will be unstable in all our ways. And here's my encouragement to you. If, if I could encourage you with anything, it is the best way of discovering the Bible's re- reliability is to get to know it and trust it. The Bible proves itself as you go along with the Bible. So a life lived in accordance to the Bible demonstrates the Bible you will very swiftly get to the point of knowing what is true and what isn't because the Holy Spirit will not deceive you. Here's the thing. If you have confidence that the Holy Spirit will not deceive you, you have confidence that the Bible will not either. You know, I grew up in a church that had, and I'm so grateful for it, had such a high value on the Word of God that from an early age, we would read it around the breakfast table before we go to school. I hated it. I now appreciate what my parents were doing for me. But what that did was just give me this internal barometer for deception. Like when someone is preaching and it is not the Word of God, I'm like, without even knowing why, often my intellect has to catch up with my spirit. The more we immerse ourselves in Scripture, the more we will realize that what's in it is true and what it claims for itself is true. So there we go. Our conclusion of week one is that biblical inerrancy means that whatever the Bible affirms as true is true. And whatever the Bible affirms as false is false. Now, I want to give you something as a parting gift. Please don't confuse what I've just said there with interpreting the Bible. Interpretation is a completely different issue. You have to have it settled in your heart that the Word of God is the Word of God before you try interpreting it. What do you mean interpret? I mean, try and understand what this verse means. I like it said this way. Everything in the Bible is literally true. But not everything is true literally. Let me say that again. Everything in the Bible is literally true. But not everything is true literally. For example, Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the door. But no one looks for doorknobs or hinges or leaves or branches coming out of Jesus' ear. You understand what I mean? So the latter, we, don't worry about that. That's interpretation. That's like, hey, is this, is this Old Testament poetry? Is this uh, Old Testament prophecy? 
is this the Gospels? Is this the book of Acts? Like you read things and you interpret things according to how it was written. That's a whole topic for another session. But people often get confused between the two. What I wanna leave you with is the encouragement that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. If we are followers of the word, it only ever brings us closer to Jesus. If you are doubting the word, take stock of your life. Has your doubting led you closer to the Lord or further away from him? If it's the latter, get your lamp and your light out because we're going to use it in the next five weeks that we have to get. I can't speak. We're going to use it in the next five weeks that we have together to discover more of what God says in theology. Let's close in prayer and then I'll dismiss you to the great outdoors. Lord Jesus, we... We just love you. We, we, we love that you saved us from an empty way of life. We love that you rescued us from the pit. We love that you've given us a glorious hope. We love that you've given us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we love that you've given us the word. And Lord, I ask that for all of us here tonight, Lord, that there would be a, an unreasonable passion for the word of God, that we would find just because of your grace and your mercy that you would deposit in our heart a supernatural hunger to not just read, but obey your word. And Lord, I ask that we would be known amongst other things that Grace Center is a Bible devouring church, that we love our word and that we're committed to sound doctrine. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you bless every person and their family that's represented here? Would you give us a deep love and a deep conviction for your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Faith, life, communication, tacos and video games, paleo donuts and the kindness of God, the things we deal with every day, from Franklin, Tennessee, they are just like you and me, Alan and AJ, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Joneses, sharing their life experiences, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Joneses, they talk about faith in God, and everything under the sun, if you are a human being, there's something here for everyone.